0: Hi everyone, this is Danny, and welcome to the Soul Stories podcast, an extension of Soul Stories, where we host conversations for healing and change. This season, we are focusing on mental health and healing. I hope these episodes are both eye-opening and give you a chance to reflect on your own journeys. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Marissa Golixrude is a licensed clinical social worker and the state clinical director of Child First. I'm so excited that she is leading off our first episode of the season. She's been a mentor to me as a leader in the Denver community and an overall shining light of a person. In this episode, she shares her experiences with depression and opens up about close family members she lost. We talk about finding balance between human-centered vulnerability and rigorous academic training in therapy. Marissa sheds light on why the mental health system is so challenging to navigate and how important it is that we destigmatize seeking help. I had a blast talking with her and think you will enjoy this one. Here is our episode. How are you doing today, Marissa?
1: I'm doing well, excited and a little anxious about this conversation, but excited.
0: Nice. Well, thanks for coming on. I know you really well. I'm excited for the listeners to get to know you really well. You're a big inspiration in my life. You're a big inspiration at Soul Stories. Um, God, you've made so much happen here, but that's a conversation from a different time. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and your current position?
1: Sure. Uh, My name is Marissa Gullixrud. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've been licensed for almost 20 years, and I am a Colorado transplant, but have been here for 18 years now, which every time I say that out loud is surprising because I feel like I'm still a Jersey girl at heart. Um, I am still a Jersey girl at heart. I came to Colorado as an AmeriCorps volunteer, so I had... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I graduated from Villanova and with a bachelor's degree in human services and had no idea what I was going to do with that. And I had a mentor who was two years older than me and had entered AmeriCorps and it sounded like a really cool program. And so I came to Colorado Springs with a group called the Holy Cross Associates, which was a program out of Notre Dame. And they intentionally placed you in a location that was far from home so that you had to figure things out on your own. And I spent a year in the Springs and it was awesome. And I thought about staying and doing a master's degree at DU, but then I got into Columbia University. And before they took that offer away, (laughs) I went back to the (laughs) East Coast. (laughs) I feel like every time I tell my story, I always say that I graduated from Columbia in 2002, but at the start of my second year of graduate work, 9-11 happened. And I was not in the city on 9-11, but it feels like such a prominent part of the story, because while the spirit of New York really was amazing post-9-11, and everyone was so proud and connected and unified, it was incredibly intense, and it was one of the reasons that I decided to move back to Colorado. So that's the story I tell everybody. The other true part of the story is that When I was an AmeriCorps volunteer at the end of the year, I fell in love for the first time, and when I went back home, that relationship ended, and I was Mm -hmm. convinced that if I came back to Colorado, I could figure it out and reunite it, which I never did, (laughs) but it was also part of the motivation, and I came back to Colorado in 2002, and I got a job with Savio House as an MST therapist to begin with, which has really guided my career. And I was with them for four years, also worked in the child protection division, eventually supervised MST, and that position, which is multi-systemic therapy. And that position brought me to Denver, where I was hired as an MST supervisor for the University of Colorado Hospital.
0: What got you interested in mental health? And when did you know you wanted to work in mental health?
1: That is such a good question because I don't know. I think the story that I tell is that altruism or volunteerism was always a part of my life. I remember very vividly being in like fourth or fifth grade and the Babysitter's Club was a book series that was very popular and all of my girlfriends were trying to figure out how to create jobs as babysitters. And instead, I created a little like flyer where I would help people. It was called like helping hands or something like that. And I like sent it out to old age homes and Uh um, like through my church and things like that and tried to get jobs just helping other people. So I feel like it is an innate, part of it is innate that like this desire to give back. Um, And that was the same in elementary school, high school, college. Like I was always doing volunteerism. And then I really liked the subject of psychology. As I was entering college, that was a subject that was really intriguing to me. And then when I was at Villanova, I took this awesome sociology course, which is you know technically the opposite of psychology. Psychology is the study of self and sociology is the study of systems or, or society. And the way I got to human services is that the human services degree required you to minor in both. And so it allowed me to explore those two areas. So it wasn't necessarily mental health at the time. It was, it was still understanding people and systems is what I found I really enjoyed as I went through college. And it was an internship at a substance abuse facility for adolescents that was probably one of the, the turning points. There was a kid there that... Um, really changed my understanding of substance use because of descriptions that he was very insightful and would talk about his draw to marijuana and psychedelics. And he helped me understand he was trying to escape something. And I wanted to, that inspired me to understand human motivation more, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then social work seemed like this perfect fit of philanthropy, volunteerism, social issues, psychology, sociology. And that was very confirming when I went to Columbia and like started to learn. It was just so fascinating to me. I always tell this story about, um, and it also became personal. So I mentioned that first love and in my first year of graduate school, that relationship ended and I was devastated. And I remember I was in a class. Maybe it was my second year, but anyway, I was in a class and we were learning about the Beck's depression inventory and the teacher that we had made everyone fill out the surveys that we were going to use with clients. So we understood exactly what the content was, what, how people might react, et cetera. And so I filled it out and handed it to my partner and my partner graded it, scored it and handed it back and whispered like, Marissa, you, you came up as clinically significant. Wow. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not depressed. I'm fine. (laughs) Um, When I think back, like I was most certainly depressed. I had lost my appetite. I was avoiding social situations. I was crying every day. And it, it was, I think it was circumstantial. It was most certainly in response to this breakup, but it was, It also impacted my functioning and I I managed grad school and internship just fine, but had no energy for anything else. I lived with my parents at the time and I would come home and eat dinner and study and go to bed. And like it was this very monotonous routine for a good six months. And in that time, I utilized the university services and sought counseling and then found a therapist the next summer that really helped me out of that hole. And so it was, a, it was a great confirming experience as I wanted to enter that field to be on the other side of the couch is what they say in the School of Social Work. And to feel like I had this better understanding of what some people go through. Yeah. And, and it also helped me, I think, appreciate and advocate for therapy as a realistic alternative, like a a realistic intervention to help people. And I think then life, in my opinion, just builds upon itself. So I got this job. So I had that experience over the summer. It really helped me get back on my feet. I decided to move to Colorado. I had a friend who had a house available and I couldn't find a job or affordable housing in New Jersey or New York. So I thought I'll go back to Colorado for a couple of years. I don't know if your friends after college, they all went somewhere for like two or three years.
0: Yeah, that's most of my friends did that.
1: Yeah, so in New Jersey, it's Boston and Philadelphia and Baltimore and all of these like East Coast cities. So I was like, I'll just do the Springs for a couple more years. And I went back to Colorado Springs and I worked for Savio. And then at the time that I was like, this is not the place for me, like it's too small, there's not enough culture, I need more my very best friend who I grew up with moved to Denver. And so I started to look at jobs in Denver. I found the gig at the University of Colorado Hospital, and I went to work there and loved that job. So there I was supervising in-home programs, in-home therapy programs, where the focus was children and adolescents that had mental health disorders. And MST, multisystemic therapy, was one of the interventions that they were implementing and i was there for about 10 years and i worked under the same manager for eight and a half of those 10 years and then my manager changed um and uh, as a part of that process like i had hoped to get to advance my position at university hospital and instead someone else got the job and i really struggled to work under him Mm -hmm. And so I gave it the college try, as I say, about 18 months, and I just couldn't do it. And so I started looking for other positions and went to Denver Children's Home. And as you are aware, (laughs) um, I've been with DCH for four years. I started as the program director for both their in-home therapy programs and their day treatment programs. This past year, I moved solely into the in-home program because that has become my passion. And I am moving on from DCH and just recently accepted an offer to be the state clinical director for a new evidence-based intervention that's coming to Colorado called Child First. So they do intensive in-home therapy for kids under six.
0: Well, that's amazing. I mean, it's amazing the kind of journey you've been through and the, like, wide variety of positions. And also, you know, for people listening who don't particularly understand like all the language about mental health, it just gives credence to how large this field is and how, how much there is and to be explored. I'm curious, coming back to your own story, I know for myself, um, and this is what I've talked about a lot of times in the podcast is just like my experience with my mom overdosing and my own issues with anxiety have just really influenced how i see mental health how i want to make an impact and so often i i feel like our field's kind of wild because a lot of people i meet have had their own experiences that have brought them to be able to work with people who can Really drive you insane on any given day. <laughs> um, I'm curious, was that your only experience with mental health? Was the depression in grad school, or were there other areas that, where you experienced different mental health issues that influenced your, your choice?
1: That was my primary personal experience. I went back to therapy in 2008 when my father was dying. So my dad had leukemia. And ironically, he it's so I feel like there's this tie in Colorado. So I found out about his cancer when I was an AmeriCorps volunteer. Mm. He was in a minor car accident, did blood work, and they found these elevated levels in his blood work and diagnosed him with leukemia at that time. But it was very inactive. And so there was no treatment. I came home from grad school. He lived with it for a couple of years, no treatment. Literally the day that my sister and I left in my packed up car to drive to Colorado was the day he started chemo. Um, yeah, but still like healthy. We're doing chemotherapy to keep this at bay. It was a chronic form of leukemia. We think he's gonna live with this for a really long time. So that was 2002. And he didn't pass away until June of 2008. So he did live with it for a really long time. Um, But my father was without a doubt, like my hero, my guide, the most important person in my life. And as he got sick, I knew that that would be hard for me. And so I started therapy, I think in April, before he, he he died in June. So a couple of months before he passed away and relied on it for the next year, I think. Um, Grief was definitely what we were dealing with. But I also had this very, uh, what I considered this existential crisis at that time, which is, who am I without him?
0: Mm.
1: And that was really what the therapy was about. And I think it was I always reference each of those clinicians as people that like saved my life. And I was never, my depression was never suicidal. I was never suicidal, but the metaphor that I always use was that in those periods of sadness, it was like the color drained out of my life. And I was walking through this black and white movie and those women turned the color back on for me.
0: That's such a good metaphor.
1: Thank you. And so Dr. Anderson was her name. She's here in Denver. I don't know if she's still in practice and right now I'm blanking on her first name, but, um, yeah, she was so helpful in helping me understand that even though my father wasn't physically here, he's always going to to be with me, that I am him. So I don't have to try to be a certain way. Like just being who I am gets to allow his legacy to continue and was just so helpful. I remember being so surprised that the world operated normally, and that everyone else's life wasn't impacted because John Mergolo had died.
0: Mm. Because
1: mine felt so altered and so different. And like, or I'd go to work, I'd go to the grocery store. And I was like, angered, like, what the hell is going on? What are the don't they know that John Mergolo died? (laughs) And so she really guided me through all of that. But those were my only two personal experiences with therapy or mental health issues. I also believe though, especially the second circumstance, my dad died when I was around 31, I'm blanking right now. Um, But it was so helpful to have a therapist in that phase of my life because yeah, I had this existential crisis that came as a result of my father's death. But doing deep work about who am I, what do I believe in, you know, what do I need to feel grounded in myself was so, so helpful at, in my early 30s. I really, that's what I think about when I think about that phase of therapy was that I really needed that at the time. And then I feel compelled to mention, because I know about your love of Brene Brown, (laughs) 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 that my third unofficial therapeutic experience came um, probably about seven years ago. Uh, I was making terrible choices in relationships and really... I think that that was a reflection of just a lack of self-worth. I had this like high in my early thirties and by the, my late thirties, that had worn off. Uh, And a friend of mine was getting trained in Brene Brown's curriculum so that she could deliver that therapy to other clients and said like, I'm really attracted to this work. I'm liking this message. Do you want to go through the curriculum with me? We'll do it together. We'll hold one, like you can be my clinician and I'll be your clinician and we'll hold one another accountable to these lessons around shame and vulnerability. And, um, and I think it'll help me deliver it better and I'm just really intrigued by the work. And so we spent three months together, meeting weekly, going through this curriculum, And that was another real growth point for me. So there wasn't, I think there were typical early, late adulthood issues that were coming up, but that idea, the work that I did with, this was my friend Shannon, the work that I did with her really helped me understand that concept of like being enough Mm -hmm. and sort of reinforced the work that I did with Dr. Anderson and was really, I considered that like my third episode of care.
0: Okay, well, there's so much there. Um, (laughs) That was so beautiful. So early thirties, you're kind of, I kind of want to like go back to that and then like move forward again. It's interesting that you almost lost your sense of identity when your dad died. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting that your work, like this tragedy that came about in your life, pushed you to do almost like identity work it sounds like
1: yeah self-discovery is what it felt like
0: what was that identity before your dad died and what did you come out with afterwards
1: that is a great question i don't think it changed all that much Mm -hmm. but i think it felt clarified one of the things that i know that felt uncertain was or what I wanted to figure out was what is my purpose, right? It was this huge question at 31. What is my purpose? How do I become a proud legacy? And I could, I'm absolutely certain that if you asked that question of my father before he died, he would have said that I was one of his greatest accomplishments. Like I loved him so deeply because he believed in me so much. Mm -hmm. Um, But the curious part was that um, during that work, and so during that time, I had this question on my mind this whole time. What is my purpose? What is my purpose? What is my purpose? And I woke up one morning and there were two words that just kept popping up into my head, like in my head, and it was just to help, to help, to help. And I went back to the therapist and I was like, I think my purpose is to help. And she was like, why do you sound confused by that? Like that is what you do. It is who you are. Like that makes a lot of sense to me. And I said, it can't be that simple. And she said, or it can. And so it was, that was what came out of there. Like, I feel very clear that my purpose is to help. And that has allowed for such wonderful I think opportunities to open for me, perspectives to be had, and to just feel more confident in my work, right? I don't have to solve every problem. I don't have to achieve every goal. I just have to be useful in the relationships that I have. So that was the before and after. And and like she said, I think that that was there before, but it wasn't clear to me and it became clear.
0: I think it's really beautiful because... I have definitely struggled with that question myself and still do and I love how simple that answer is because I think many of us put incredible amount of pressure on uh, ourselves to be I don't know we're in the social media generation we're in celebrity America we're in we're in be famous and you know whatever like to be these like larger than life figures or even the activists we look up to. like to make this huge difference in the world. And I just love that because it feels like it takes out like a sense of control. Like you're like, if I can be helpful here, then I've done my job versus like, if I can, you know, solve like X number of people's problems and prevent them from doing something dangerous, then I've done my job. Like you're like, it's so, it's such a self-focused approach.
1: Yeah. Thank you. It's been really helpful, really helpful over the years.
0: And then what was the shame you were working through later with the, yeah, I know, I'm just going in on it. Yeah. I'm just like, this is my opportunity.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when I was ending my career at the University of Colorado Hospital, I had fallen in love for the third time. And it was months into that relationship that I found out that that partner was in another relationship. And I was.
0: It's fucked up.
1: Yeah, it was, it was terrible. And it took me a really long time to end it after that. I was. I, and that was. So, if we want to do some psychoanalysis, um, it was at the same time that my father was dying. That was all tied up in my brain. Like, I think staying connected to him in some unconscious way made me feel like I was connected to my father, even though he in that period of time had passed away, it got really messy. And and so I felt very shameful about the fact that I didn't see this clear, right and wrong and make the proper decision to end that relationship. I held on to it for several months. So just a lot of shame and guilt around that. And then sort of getting into other dating relationships where I didn't feel I wasn't being valued And so it wasn't the same, like I didn't continue to get involved with men in relationships, but I kept getting involved in relationships that were not valuing me as a person. So that Brene Brown work sort of helped me understand that, and even the work with the therapist, we worked a lot on that issue as well. So she started it, and then the Brene Brown work really helped me buy into that idea that people make mistakes. Everyone's got shit they hold on to that they're embarrassed by or not proud of. I don't have to keep that a secret, right? I could tell that story and walk through the world. It also really helped me in my work to be compassionate to other people. I work mainly with kids, but they all have parents. And so while it may or may not be issues of infidelity, it just allowed me to be compassionate. that, like sometimes people make decisions in a moment of weakness without full information that are incongruent to who they are or want to be and to be able to, yeah, have greater empathy for that and understanding around it. And then I really think it allowed me to value vulnerability As I moved forward in life. And I think that that's one of the reasons that I feel so connected to you. I think I've told you the story that when we opened up that daytime treatment supervisor position, and you emailed and I saw the Brene Brown quote in your signature. In my head, I was like, I don't even need to do this interview. This
0: is Um, a nice
1: I find myself attracted to people who are willing to tell their story and to own their story and to understand as a point of connection and not a point of embarrassment or, or something that they need to hide.
0: That's really beautiful. Um, do you feel, and I, I'm pretty, pretty young in mental health. Do you feel that that is a part of mental health philosophy or is that like a burgeoning kind of thing? Like the idea of vulnerability and mental health workers doing their own work in order to like support their clients and the people they work with?
1: I think the idea of mental health workers doing their own work has been around for a really long time. That was certainly reiterated time and time again while I was in grad school. Again, going back to if you haven't been on the other side of the couch you're going to enter into a therapeutic relationship without as much knowledge as you could have, that it was really strongly recommended that you look at yourself before you tried to become a clinician and get into deep relationships with other people. I think I'm sure you can relate that the therapeutic process is so fascinating because it's so incredibly intimate Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, and vulnerable. And in order to get, to get out what you need to get out of that process, you have to be willing to take down those walls and sort of be open and raw and say the things that you're afraid to say anywhere else. And I think that those, my therapeutic experiences as the client really, that's why they were so healing, right? Like when I was depressed in grad school, I remember I was at dinner once with my parents and God, I think I'm just remembering this now. This is like a memory that I I closed up for a little while, but I think my dad at one point, I was so sad for so long, but like struggling through it and trying to still show up to family things that my dad said something like, you know, if you really need something to be sad about, we should talk about my most recent Like oncology appointment because things are not looking good, (laughs) and I was like, "Well, that's both level setting and gonna make me even more depressed." Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, And then, um, yeah, I I lost my train of thought. But I think to say that, I totally lost my train of thought. Uh,
0: I've been to three or four different therapists. Mm I've had one who was incredibly enabling um, who felt like they were just like there to say, good job. Like, how could you be sad? You're, you're doing so much good work. Like it was just like this really weird experience. The second one was like uh, almost emotionally abusive in terms of everything I did and said was never good enough. I would come in the session doing the homework that he asked me to do. And he would tell me how everything I did was a part of my shadow self How it was all enacting like ego, narcissist kind of things. I'm impressed Um, you
1: saw a third therapist after that.
0: It took (laughs) me a while. It took me a while. Told me that Soul Stories was a part of my immature self, and that when I like mature, I'll become a counselor or a social worker or something. And then I had two. I'm currently seeing a therapist, and the two after that have been amazing and have been transformational and really pushed me to feel pain I didn't even know I had and I like as an introspective person I am someone who will tell you I know everything I feel and think Um, it's like a weird pride arrogance thing about my own introspection (laughs) um and I was wrong like there were so many things I was blocking from my vision within myself that I had to like have somebody push me to go to feel you know it's like it just feels fucked up that I had a 50-50 shot out of four people, you know?
1: Yes. I think that that's my greatest frustration. So one of my, my personal campaign in the last, gosh, it feels like at least 10 years right now is destigmatizing mental health. It really makes me angry that the metal, especially being in the hospital system for a decade, that the medical, we had to fight so hard in the department of psychiatry for any kind of recognition in the medical system. And... It really angers me that we spend so much money on right like everybody eats terribly and then has heart issues and gets their heart surgeries or gets their med- their lipitor or whatever like and that's completely okay everybody you know you have high cholesterol we're going to put you on medication so that we don't have to have a you know so you don't have a heart attack and we don't have to do surgery down the road but it is so hard to access quality mental health. Even when I found Dr. Anderson, that took me something like six to eight weeks to find her because I was making phone calls, not getting them called back. I was making phone calls, we don't accept new clients. I was making phone calls, we accept your insurance, but it's still gonna cost $150 a session. It was ridiculous. And so, so that's one thing is access. And then the other piece is, the conversation around mental health, right? Like I remember in that period of time that I was feeling depressed. Uh, yeah, even just what I just said, feeling depressed instead of I was depressed. Um, I went to a baby shower and a distant relative came up to me and was like, oh my God, you look incredible. You, you lost weight. You didn't even have to lose weight. You lost weight. And I remember vividly in my head, like, Screaming in my head, like, because I'm sick. I'm so sick. I can't eat because I'm screaming at you right now. I'm sorry. Okay, um, this is great. You know, I'm thin because I sit down to dinner and I have three bites and I can't eat anymore. I, I don't have an appetite. I had lost like 20 pounds in six months. I was teeny tiny and it was not healthy at all. And no one thought to say, Are you okay?
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: Right. The message was, You look great. Yeah, And I was like, that's so messed up. And so that was, I think also just like, I think all of these things, I don't think you need to have depression or anxiety or PTSD to be a good clinician. I think you need to have an eager heart and an interest in other people Can we, good training.
0: Can we screen for that? Cause I feel like the whole masters thing drives me kind of crazy like this very academic approach to these like heart-based, that's why I think Brene Brown to me seems so like duh, but also it's like so transformational because it's so heart-based.
1: Yeah, but I would also argue, so I, I'm i arguing against you, do I think that yeah, there are people out it. there, <laughs> I think there are many compassionate, heart-based, wonderful people out there that could have fantastic conversations with you that are healing and helpful and take you to a different place i do think training is important i think Mm -hmm. right like it was in that training that i could put together those symptoms that i was experiencing independently and say oh yeah that depression score makes sense because those are a constellation of symptoms that prove that you have depression Mm -hmm. um i do think training is important because well, one, because I'm nerdy like that and love to learn, but two, I think leads to ideally more effective treatment, which going back to what you said, that does not mean that every person with letters after their last name is worth their weight in salt. Obviously, there are real crappy clinicians out there. I think that there's also the pendulum swings in the other direction where many people are attracted to the helping professions because of their own personal experience that can often get in the way of helping other people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. That was definitely how I felt at the beginning of working at Denver Children's Home. A lot of projection happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's good motivation, but yeah, you need good supervision then.
0: Well, you're my supervisor, so that (laughs) helps. (laughs) Yeah, it's just interesting. And I'm just going to rant a little bit more on this. I had a friend go to a therapist and within 30 minutes, they diagnosed them with PTSD, like barely knew their story, barely like talked to them. They were 15 minutes late because of the therapist not getting on there on time. And then exactly, at seven o'clock or whatever it was, was like, okay, time's up. And it was just, it just sounded so robotic. And it sounded like that person might as well have had the DSM in front of them and been like, um, symptom, 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 PTSD. Okay. Uh, that'll be $90. I'll see you later. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just like, how can we meet in the middle in these? I I mean, obviously it's a human error problem as well, but like, What do you think we need for mental health for that like training and that academic work to meet with heart-based vulnerability work? I just believe in balance, you know?
1: Yeah. My one question is, do you think your friend had PTSD? Was it an accurate diagnosis?
0: I don't know. I don't know if I could speak to it, but it just sounded like the approach, like even if it is true, it's like the approach sounded so like, Nothing will throw someone's defenses up like that, like before they know anything about them, you know?
1: Yeah. One of the things that's coming to mind right now is, is how grateful I am that my career landed in community-based work. Uh So every, my initial experiences as a clinician were entering people's homes and trying to tell parents how to better Parent their children at 25 (laughs) years old.
0: Having (laughs) never had a a setup for (laughs) something.
1: (laughs) Right. So I think, um, I don't know the answer to your question, though I do believe in the balance. I think one of the responses in my head is if people could approach assessment with curiosity. I think that would help that process, right? If the first three sessions were just about getting to know your patient or client.
0: Building a relationship, like a very simple thing.
1: Right. And many people should know that, but they might not all execute it. I also think the system makes it shitty because I'm sure that that therapist that your friend saw has to have a diagnosis in order to build their session, blah, 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 Uh... blah, blah,
0: blah,
1: right? So... So the system is also built in a way that is not necessarily client focused. Finally, going back to community-based work, being 25, entering a home and telling someone how to parent when you've never been a parent is also incredibly (laughs) humbling. And I think I am sure that I made lots of mistakes early on in my career. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure that people that worked with me probably thought, who the hell does she think she is? And and I wouldn't have done it that way either. But being a science of humanity, sadly, there are mistakes made. Community-based also doesn't operate under the same traditional rules. So that it's seven o'clock, our session has ended, we've probably worked together for 70 minutes or I have another client coming in behind you and need to get back on schedule. I think one of the things that I love about in-home work is the flexibility and the fact that you have to take a creative approach because you're entering someone's home.
0: I want to take a moment and pause to thank all of our patrons for their financial contributions and monthly donations. It goes a long way to bringing this podcast to you in a high quality format, as well as supporting the volunteers at Soul Stories. If you want to become a patron, it's as easy as $2 a month You get bonus content and the link is in the bio. Now let's return to our conversation.
1: You can't go in there guns blazing, telling them what to do. It's not your space. Right. You have to respect that it's their home, their roles. And that leads to creative approaches in, yes, all of those things are true. And the way that you interact with your child is challenging and creating damaging the attachment they have with you mm-hmm. right or your child is running what's that expression Ramp shock R- running rampant no but same thing you ramp know shock. Your,
0: i like that i want to look i don't up. know
1: what that's not the want, right word i want to know
0: what ramp shock is
1: okay. <laughs> totally not the right word <laughs> anyhow you know your kid is in control of this household And of course, you're frustrated and yelling and making poor choices in response to that because you have no authority. So how did we get there? How do we shift this dynamic so that there is a mutual respectful relationship that your kiddo is motivated to participate in so that your household runs differently? So I think doing community-based work also has taught me to be flexible to the client's needs.
0: How do you open up a conversation like that? I mean, I I just think of even giving feedback to like my roommates or like close friends in my life. That sounds terrifying in some way. Just being able to be like, actually, you did that thing. Like, I could just imagine that bringing up so much defense and anger and frustration on the part of the parent, because I'm sure they're like, as you have mentioned, they're doing their best. Mm-hmm they just might not have the skills. How do you open up a conversation to give people feedback about skill building?
1: Well, first, I think you come from that perspective, right? That is one of the social work tenants that I believe in 100%, which is like people are doing the best they can with what they have. And so if you are encountering them where their best does not seem to be meeting the mark, then there's probably something that they don't have that they need in order to perform differently but i think you start the conversation by finding a way to align with the parents' concerns or the person's concerns like so find that's a common where,
0: ground almost
1: right so if we can agree that your kid is driving you nuts for whatever reason <laughs> yeah then i think people are more willing to accept help the other thing that i do a lot especially you know i haven't done direct care therapy in a really long time but i do intakes a lot and I try to ensure that in every intake that I do, I remind people that we're good at what we do, that we've seen other families who have felt the way that they have felt. And we've worked with other families where things have felt upside down or where their child is getting in trouble or their child is suicidal and they don't know what to do. And I try in that conversation to instill hope that we might not resolve everything but I think we can talk about systems and communication and, and sort of instill some confidence that you can have more agency around this circumstance.
0: That reminds me actually of my therapist, Jenny. I would say something that felt really, like, that like felt really shameful. Um, and she would just, she would like laugh and she had this, like, really inviting laugh where she'd be like, you know, you think this is, like, something that's, like, unique and so, like, out of control, but, like, honestly, I've seen A, B, and C, like, this has come up and this way and that way. And and it was never, like, a story-topping or condescending, but it was just, like, you're you're okay. You're normal. Like, this isn't a big deal. We just don't talk about these things. And she just, like, would build this kind of aura of, like, it's okay and we'll get through it kind of thing.
1: Right, because isn't that what shame is? Like shame is you telling yourself this story that only you are this awful. Yeah. Right? Everybody else has figured it out. Even though the person that is across, you know, the hallway from you has probably the exact same shame about the exact same thing. I think going back to our hero, (laughs) Brene Brown, one one of my favorite things that she taught me is that we don't connect over one another's accomplishments, right? Like Mm -hmm. you getting a promotion doesn't make me feel more connected to you as a person. But when you tell me, you know, when I tell you, yeah, I I got involved in this relationship and I completely didn't know this guy had a partner and I stayed in it for three or four months and felt terrible. And you're like, Oh, well yeah. My friend, I mean, that happened to my friend. Yeah. Yeah. that's where you come, like, right? Like being accepted in that way is where you create connection to someone else or saying, you know, hearing your story about your mom and knowing like, I can't believe we were an hour and this hasn't come up yet, but you know, my brother having addiction issues, like that made you a safe person to be able to talk to my brother about because I knew that you would understand in a way that maybe someone whose family didn't manage addiction wouldn't get.
0: Yeah. Having those little like holes in the armor makes us much more human being able to see them. And actually the thing you were talking about that happened to you with your boyfriend, another guest on the season, and this is a little cross promotion by me, shameless cross promotion, Carrie Ann who's an empowerment coach was in a relationship with a guy for two years and he had been in a relationship for the, for 10 years, like that whole time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it happens all the time.
0: Right, yeah, and it's really I'm really happy you share that on this one because I'm like, oh wow, that is like, it's just nice to kind of like normalize these things.
1: Right, and I think that that's my intention around the mental health conversation. Like, so many people struggle with different kind of mental health disorders that if we were having conversations about them in a way that was open and empowering and not shameful, there could be so much more connection, but instead we have this idea that those conversations are secret. I remember going, weaving in my brother. Um, my brother had an addiction with pain medication and ended up coming to Colorado for treatment because I worked at the hospital and I'd have a conversation with my family to say, I'm not going to be dishonest about why Thomas is in Colorado. My friends know him He does not live in Colorado. He's going to start showing up at things like, and I had to have that conversation with my brother and make sure that that was okay. But I said like, this is your problem, but it's a journey for multiple people. And, and I'm not going to be secretive about that because I don't think you should be secretive about that. Like, I don't think this is something that you have to hide or be ashamed of. It's where we're at right now. And that was an interesting conversation. Right, because my mom dealt with it differently, my sister dealt with it differently, my brother dealt with it differently, but I was post my Brene Brown work and really felt it was important to be transparent, and it ended up helping me a ton because my brother was here in 2015 and passed away in 2015. Um, Sorry to hear that. Thank you. I'm very proud to say when he died, he was sober but I needed all of those friends that I was on. Like I was here in Colorado with minimal family and his death was very sudden and very sad because he had worked so hard to get to this place of sobriety. And then he died three months after he got sober, six months after he got sober. And again, it was one of those times where the color drained out of the picture and what I said after that tragedy was like, I was only able to stand up because other people were lifting me up. Mm. I had this amazing support system in Denver, who knew and loved Thomas as, you know, maybe not as much as I did, but they still knew and loved Thomas, um, and and knew that I needed help to get through it. And interestingly enough, because we're talking about mental health, I went back to Dr. Anderson for like two sessions after Thomas died. And I realized that I didn't need to be in therapy, that, like, I had skills I sure as shit, had a ton of resilience at this point. And I had the support that I needed through my social connection, and I could I would be okay. But I also really appreciated the fact. That she was still around and still in business, and that I could anchor myself, I could have a conversation and know like i I'm going to be okay,
0: yeah, wow, that's such a i mean I, I mean first of all, it's really sad that your brother died, and that's an incredible tragedy that you had to endure, and it really says something to the healing process about how dynamic it is and how it requires like therapy and it requires skill building and it requires telling your story so you can build connections and you have people who you can be vulnerable with that can support you and lift you up and how it's such a full circle of care just to be able to get through. I mean, so many people have lost somebody. So many people have mental health issues and addiction in their life. So many people are one step away from these things. And it's kind of just part of being human. At least that's Kind of what I'm developing in my perspective. And it feels like we need a lot to stay healthy and live live a good life.
1: Yeah, for sure. Nowadays, I'm more astounded by folks whose stories don't include any of that.
0: Yeah, I would right. do. Yeah. I don't, I'm like, I'm like racking my brain for that.
1: Yeah, I'm like, damn, you are lucky. Right. You, Probably dodge some bullets.
0: <laughs> what would you say to somebody who is struggling to open up that knows they like are in pain, but not sure like they want to pursue help? Like, what, what do you think the first step is to getting help given the myriad of factors like insurance and shitty therapists and just the different ways you have to interact with the system?
1: I think my advice would be to find an ally, like someone that can help you through it and keep you accountable to the process.
0: Like a, um, like somebody in your life?
1: Yeah, like a friend, a trusted confidant, like someone who is unattached. I would also, now that I'm thinking about it, I also think that those, one of the things that I say to all of my friends in my 30s is go get a therapist. whether yeah. Whether you need one or not, like, again, that, that journey of self-discovery was so critical in my life that I encourage other people to engage in it just because it's helpful. Even if there's nothing pathological, you don't think you have a mental health issue, having a neutral party that you can reflect ideas off of that can help you feel more grounded in your sense of self, I think is a wonderful resource. So I like the idea of having that person on your team before you necessarily need them. Um, so that when, cause right, it's so hard when you're depressed or anxious, having the motivation to go find someone to help you, <laughs> yeah. it's not there. But I would say because it's not there, relying on utilizing the support systems that you already have in your life, people that care about you and want you to be well, if you can confide in them, I think that that's a good step. I think the advice that I always say, and I've had friends and family members who've felt this way, is that although it's scary, I can almost guarantee you, your stories are now making me a little reticent about this situation, this (laughs) statement. (laughs) But I can almost guarantee you, you're going to feel better on the other side. It's not going to make your situation worse.
0: Yeah. I do say those stories because I don't want to get into the good versus evil of like, you know, sometimes we talk in big sweeping statements in this country like well if we just had therapy there'd be no school shootings right and i think i just say those things because there is a navigation aspect to the system there's a navigation everybody needs a friend to confide in but you don't walk outside and go hey man walking down the street with your dog will you be my confidant you know <laughs> like right like it i encourage people to con- find therapists that they connect with and that their instincts tell them that they can trust not just because they walk into an office do they can they assume that they're like fully trustworthy for their issues
1: yes one of the things that i tell my friends who are looking for therapists is that you don't have to go with the first one yeah. right? it's right so also something else i learned in training which is that there has to be a connection you're actually another memory is getting dragged up right now. The first counselor that I saw at Columbia was a nice guy, but there was not a connection and I couldn't do really great work. He wasn't terrible, he wasn't awful. It just, it wasn't there, but he was the person that referred me to the woman in New Jersey who was one of those doctors that turned the color back on for me. So I think that that process was still important, but I do say like, give it a couple of visits and if you don't feel a connection, it's okay to say, I've really appreciated our time together, but I need to find someone else. And any good therapist, A, will probably be feeling the same way because right. you know if you have rapport or not, and B, will not be offended if that's the outcome.
0: Yeah. Because that's, you know, that's just part of the process.
1: Right. Yeah. It's like dating.
0: Yeah, I was just about to say, it sounds a lot like dating. (laughs) Have they thought about like a Tinder app for therapists?
1: I bet you there's one out there. I've heard really good things about BetterHelp. BetterHelp? Yeah, which is an app-based therapeutic support.
0: That's cool. Are there any other things that like, I never heard of that. Are there any other resources like that that you know of?
1: The resource that we recommend the most of all to find a therapist is PsychologyToday.com. So Psychology oh. Today has one of the most advanced search engines and has bios. So what I like about it is that you can say, "I have this insurance," "I live in zip, this zip code," "I want a male or female or what have you." These are the I want someone that specializes in these issues. And like, there's a ton of different, like, I want someone that's spiritual or religious or this, like, there's a ton of filtering that you can do. And it's a huge database.
0: Wow. That's interesting. I was fooled by their branding because I feel like when I go on their website, it feels like I'm in like 1995.
1: <laughs> I have not seen other parts of their website. I literally go to PsychologistsToday.com, find a therapist.
0: <laughs> um. <laughs> How do you see mental health growing and evolving? Like, what are areas that we need to like push into? Especially, I mean, now that you're really at a high level position in the state, and like, just like having the influence, like, not to like put you on a pedestal, but now you have real influence, which is so cool. Because you're somebody I would like, you know, die being like I would trust Marissa with my life. So,
1: thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. Um. I think two things. I think like every health issue, earlier intervention. So one of the things that attracts me to this next position with child first is we're intervening with families before kids turn six years old. So think about if your relationship with your parent got level set at six years old, having worked in child protection and child welfare for 20 years, The hope that I have is that addressing the relationship early on will prevent abuse down the line. So, early intervention, I think, is one. One of the things you know that I just finished this experience with Leadership Denver, and I swear on my life, the only reason I got into that civic leadership course is because in the interview, I said to the interviewees, When is Colorado going to catch up to their mental health crisis? And people were like, What are you talking about? I was like, Columbine was 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: 20 years ago and we haven't done diddly squat in the state of Colorado to address mental health. And the suicide and had, rate is
0: super high here too, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think it's Gosh, we should know this cuz we just put this presentation <laughs> together. Why is this statistic not coming up? Yeah, I well, believe is it a, is the second leading cause of death for children, adolescents and adults between 10 and 24.
0: I think that's nationally. And I feel like Colorado is actually one of the highest of that stat, too. I
1: think, yes. And I think it's the lowest as far as I think it ranks 47th out of 50 states in resources.
0: That's insane.
1: So the thing that disappoints me about that is like compared to other states, we should have had a 20 year head start. Yeah. Because I mean, there's no doubt that Columbine was connected to mental health. And we've had other schools, sh- I mean, we've had Aurora, the Aurora theater shooting. We had the the one in Arapaho County whose name I forget right now. So anyway, so I think Colorado as a state needs to do something different. But I think the United States, we have to do something different. I think it needs to be covered by insurance, better mental health. I mean, you said 90 bucks an hour. I think when I was seeing Dr. Anderson, it was 180 an hour. Like oh, yeah.
0: 90 is the lowest I've ever found. I, right. I know people right now doing 140, 160, 180.
1: Yeah. And as a clinician, I'm all for that because I think that mental health is valuable <laughs> and, and the people doing the work should get paid, right? But society doesn't have the same value around it. And that's why right. it's not covered. It should be that the clinician is getting $200 an hour and the patient is paying a $20 copay.
0: Right. Yeah, because I'm like, I'm telling somebody right now, I'm like, yeah, I actually spent most of my savings to get therapy, but you know, I'm young, do it. And like, you're young, do it now. And it's like, I shouldn't have to be saying like, it's your savings or it's therapy. You know, it's like, that's right. Cause not even, yeah, not, yeah go ahead.
1: Sorry, not uh, sorry to interrupt you, but also I would, I would say personally, and I wonder if it's the same for you, I would spend that money all over again
0: yeah uh, for sure the amount of psychological pain i'm not experiencing on a day-to-day basis is totally worth that money
1: absolutely so i think we have to value mental health more and i think it's just like every other movement that we find ourselves in right now which is that people in power have to start the conversation I just saw this awesome documentary last night, not in t- like not to get me psyched up for this conversation, but Michael Phelps did a documentary called The Weight of Gold, it's on HBO right now, that talked about this incredibly high number of Olympic athletes who experience anxiety, depression, and have committed suicide or have had suicidal thoughts because there's so much attention to their physical well-being and their performance and absolutely no attention can- Um, paid to mental health outside of performance so all of the sports psychologists right like how do we get these barriers out of the way so that you can perform at the top level but no one that's saying you know who are you without being an athlete you know what happens when you get injured or your career is over and or you age out like no support on the other side of that but it's michael phelps starting that conversation so it's elevated hopefully
0: Yeah. I think that's so important. I think about my dad, when my dad got cut by the Oakland Raiders in like the second week of training camp, like, you know, all of a sudden this like dream just comes tumbling down that like his whole life he didn't have to worry about anything else because he was a D one football player. He was going to go pro that was going to be his career. And then he ends up boxing, losing 50 pounds, going through severe depression, Like, especially for male athletes and male athlete culture, that's just so far away from the conversation so far away from them.
1: But how cool would it be if who's the quarterback for the Browns right now? Baker Mayfield,
0: Baker Mayfield. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Right. If he used his platform to say mental health's important or I struggle with anxiety. Yeah. Right. Like if the NFL or like one of those systems that has this huge platform, that's super big, that's that people look up to. Acknowledged that I think it could be a game changer.
0: Yeah. Speaking of which, I talked to your friend Ryan Harris, the Broncos play another cross promotion for the season. What a Um, great segue. (laughs) He he was so inspiring in that realm, really humanized the NFL experience. um, Yeah. And how insane Mm -hmm. it is to like how people treat you. Yeah. Yeah, It's crazy.
1: You're like a commodity.
0: Yeah. You're a commodity. Did you hear Dak Prescott, what he did? No. Jack Prescott, quarterback for the Cowboys, his brother killed himself. Um, and he went on talking about how much depression he felt and how hard it was. And here's the crazy part. This is maybe a little bit separate from the podcast, but Skip Bayless, a famous mm-hmm. announcer or a TV personality for ESPN was like, you can't show that kind of weakness as the Cowboys quarterback.
1: Right. But he was totally allowed to say how, how tragic it was that his mom, right. Didn't his mom have cancer and pass away right before he got to the NFL. I'm not sure. I believe it was Dak Prescott. Um, and how influential she was, like how grief is okay to talk about, but suicide is not okay to talk about.
0: Yeah. Right. Grief makes your story
1: more compelling. And now we love you because you overcome this tragedy, but a suicidal tragedy is way too much for people to, to bear.
0: Yeah. People's perspective of suicide is really interesting too.
1: Oh yeah. So you would love this documentary, the weight of gold, not plugging Michael Phelps, but it was, there was an Olympian who killed themselves and their mother was so amazing. Her report was so amazing because she made mention of the fact of like, he was in such psychic pain day to day that I'm not surprised by this outcome. And I don't, I'm not angry about this outcome wow. because because who would want to live through that pain i'm angry that he didn't i don't even think she said this but my extrapolation was like i'm angry he couldn't find the relief that he needed in the world
0: yeah that's really sad yeah how do we get on this whole athlete conversation <laughs>
1: uh stigma <laughs> stigma reduction
0: Oh, I will yeah. say,
1: I feel compelled to say because I badmouthed Colorado and Denver, but I do know that there's a framework for how Denver and Colorado can do a better job with mental health. And I'm really encouraged by that because, again, there needs to be resource for it, and it has to come from the top down.
0: What's the framework?
1: My understanding is that both Mayor Hancock and Governor Polis have approaches that they would like to take in the next one to five years that make effort to address the barriers that you and I talked about. So Mm -hmm. anti-stigma reduction, suicide awareness and prevention, access to resources, community conversations, things like that. So I'm hoping that we see some progress in in Colorado in, in the next few
0: years. Yeah, it's interesting because when you think of Colorado and Denver, you think of like a progressive area and mental health doesn't feel like a new conversation. So totally. it's interesting. It's taking so long, but it's nice to see that our leaders are, are attempting and trying new things.
1: Agreed. And I think the other I- irony about that is that Colorado is also known as this exceptionally healthy state. <laughs>
0: yeah. So
1: why isn't, you know, how do we bring mental health into that conversation? So it's a whole health
0: yeah, I'm excited for the day when physical health isn't lifted above mental health.
1: And I think we're getting close to that. Like I had an appointment with my PCP the other day and as part of the check-in, I did a depression screening.
0: Well, okay, so I may, might make this um not sound hopeful, but I just went to my <laughs> primary care physician and I did the same thing. I like mentioned anxiety later in the interview and they like screened me and they asked me all these questions and I scored Pretty high on the anxiety. Like I know I I mean it was very obvious it was one, two, or three. I answered two for every single question. Mm-hmm. And they wrote them down and they're like, Okay, now step on the scale. And it was just like, All right, well
1: Did your doctor mention it at all?
0: No, it was never mentioned again. It was just like clearly a, a, <laughs> a checkbox. Grant, I've never heard those questions before, so that's nice. But
1: Yeah but you would expect some follow-up.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, oh, you sound anxious. Have you <laughs> done anything about that? Like, even the most... Would you
1: most- like to talk to someone <laughs> about that? Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, uh, well, I'll call you up and you can be my private practice therapist after this. <laughs> okay. so.
1: I need uh, to get some, uh, a shingle out.
0: <laughs> um, as we're wrapping up, this has just been so nice and So good to talk to you in this format. I've been really, really excited to do this.
1: Thank you for making it so comfortable. It's not nearly as anxiety provoking as I thought it would be.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad. What are your like final wrap up thoughts for today's conversation?
1: Let's talk more about mental health. The cool thing about it, and I think what you and I are doing right now and what we have the opportunity to do is to make it okay for other people to have those conversations with us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So going back to that purpose of to help, I think if I make it okay for people to tell me about what they're going through by being vulnerable myself and opening up to other people, then hopefully there's a small number of folks that might get the assistance that they need. and while that might not be shifting the needle in a tremendous way it it makes me feel better right I'd rather be a support and an agent of change for one person than no one at all
0: yeah that comes back to what you're talking about with your purpose is just like helping and, and doing everything you can with what you have
1: yeah I think the other is I guess I said it already but is just willing to share your story with other people that Brene Brown stuff is just like, I think she has a quote that says, be brave enough to tell your whole story.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, God, she's the best. The prophet. <laughs> the prophet. We'll have Brene to hashtag her,
1: tag her in this promotion.
0: <laughs> oh my God. If she like paid attention to soul stories, like for a second, like if it slid past her DMs or something, I would, I would melt. I would melt. So... <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I don't ha- I don't think I have a much larger message than that I just wish it was I wish it was a larger part of the conversation and I'm hopeful that it will become that
0: well thank you for dedicating your life to it to making it a larger part of the conversation I'm sure it has come a long way since your days in Colombia yeah <laughs> and I hope it continues to grow and yeah you're the best
1: thanks Danny you're the best too I really appreciated this this was a lot of fun
0: Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode and supporting the podcast. I absolutely love this project. I want to thank you, the listener, our guests, for sharing their incredible stories, and Kamga Chasa, the magic maker, the producer of the Soul Stories podcast. If you want to support us, leave a rating and or review, share it with a family member or a friend. This is Danny, signing off.